Podcast, Episode 44, A Spy Show Special. Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic adventure to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way, Sequel Quest is go for launch. So let the adventure begin now. Hello, Agent Listener. You are on a secured podcasting line. Your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to enjoy another episode of the Sequel Quest podcast. If you choose not to enjoy the fun and ridiculousness within, we will disavow all knowledge of your activities. The podcast will self-destruct in 90 minutes. Hey, hey, hey. That's right. Another episode of Sequel Quest. The podcast that brings you sequels, prequels, and reboots to your favorite films and film franchises. Today, we have a special spy-themed episode. I am Agent Adam, and I'm happy to introduce with me, Agent Jeremy. Say hello. Hello. I am in an undisclosed location, awaiting further orders. (laughs) As always, you can rely on Agent Jeremy. We actually have a guest host with us, a guest agent here to help us uh, accomplish this mission. He actually jumped on board right after the show started and so we're happy to have him here now we put in his bid early and he's been recruited agent forest say hello hey guys reporting for duty here (laughs) now forest i know you've heard what we do here is there one episode in particular that sticks out in your mind something that got you excited made you want to be a part of it absolutely i love the indiana jones episode that was awesome as a history teacher that just sparked my imagination so you your Self may actually become Indiana Jones someday. Yeah. Do you have a favorite film genre? Do you go more for adventure? Are you a drama guy? Are you a comedy guy? What do you, in the world of, of movies, what do you enjoy the most? I guess I usually lean towards sci-fi. Adventure is always good as well. Jurassic Park, for sure. Definitely a classic. Well, Forrest, we let our guest hosts actually pick the topic of the episode, and you came to us saying, I would love to discuss a certain spy film franchise, and we're doing a little bit of a different format. Today, we actually pick any type of spy film, and then we'll just kind of discuss it, but we won't necessarily pick a specific film to focus on. It's kind of a, an open discussion and just a fun time with movie fans today. But spy films, when you think about them, they've been around. You know, you had The Man Who Knew too much and then that was remade later in the 50s you know like that was back in the 30s the first one came out you know hitchcock got into it we had north by northwest it's interesting because there's a lot of spy films that are obviously adventure films kind of more dramatic and then you also get the comedic satire spy films as well do you Jeremy, Forrest, have a preference of either or? Forrest, go ahead, lead off. Well, I'll take the total recall approach here, where being a spy should in many ways be sort of like fulfilling a fantasy. Like guy get travels around the world, you know, meets these beautiful women. And so I think it should definitely have a fun, kind of entertaining tone. That's kind of my take on it. Well, there's been quite a few different spy films that I've enjoyed throughout the years. The recent The Man from Uncle, mixed reviews, but... It had its laughs, it's got its action, a little bit of spy on spy. Then, of course, you have the unforgettable Austin Powers 
trilogy. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's not much you can say about that. They basically took you know the best of all spy films and put it in a blender, right? And then uh, <laughs> just changed some names around. And I mean, made it's, it a little it's more totally ridiculous. the the parody of the spy genre. And then, yeah, you get a touch of everything. And then you've got your Born Supremacy, your the Mission Impossible series, even back to Harrison Ford and Clear and Present Danger, Patriot Games, The Manchurian Candidate. Oh, what was the other one? The Interpreter? Oh yeah, with Nicole Kidman. Right. Wow, that was that was a deep pull there. Wow. <laughs> and and of course, I mean, we've got the Bond series. Even Arnold gets in on this. True lies. Well, what I find interesting is that occasionally, you know, you get the one-off spy films, but really the possibilities are endless. That's why you have so many Mission Impossibles. That's why there's an endless number of James Bond films and everything else is it, there's always the next mission, right? And yet in some cases, you know, it just doesn't quite hit. Like The Saint with Val Kilmer you remember that one from the 90s based on the, the british television show the saint which actually starred roger moore i believe which is interesting so you had that that it didn't go anywhere or i guess where it's a one-off story especially when it's based on real events like argo right like academy award-winning argo right there's that one and also tom hanks with bridge of spies i think uh tinker taylor soldier spy was pretty good Right. Now, there's one I came across, a buddy of mine showed it to me on Netflix, and it sat in my queue because I can keep going back to it. And it doesn't have good reviews on most places, but that's probably because Topher Grace is involved. Aha. Uh -huh. It's called The Double. It's Richard Gere and Topher Grace. It's a good watch and a good mind twist that you can keep playing with. Yeah, it's, it's worth a watch. Well, if we're going into spy films that are kind of underappreciated, you know the movie that sprang to my mind first is from 1991, If Looks Could Kill, starring Richard Grieco from 21 Trump Street. <laughs> Do either of you remember this film? Are you aware of it? I've heard of the name. Yeah, the name sounds familiar, but... <laughs> yeah, well, it, it was a movie that was always at my local Blockbuster video, and I would always see it. It had a great cover. He's like on the hood of a car. It was kind of reminiscent of Beverly Hills Cop. But basically, it's like there's a secret agent that has his same name, and there's a mix-up. He gets pulled in by British intelligence to become a secret agent. He's just this high school senior. So it's kind of like, what if James Bond was Ferris Bueller? It's that kind of concept. So it's pretty fun. They give him all these gadgets, and he, you know, he's foiling this plot and whatever. So anyway. Anyway, the other thing I was going to mention, too, is Get Smart. To me, it was like the ultimate spy parody before Austin Powers, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's super old, but it was good times. The other one that my wife threw out there to me, which is one of her favorites, is a Doris Day film called The Glass Bottom Boat. And it's, it's kind of a weird story where this girl is a mermaid for this traveling glass bottom boat company. And then she gets pulled into this kind of espionage plot at this rich guy's house that she starts dating. And Dom DeLuise is in it, like super Super young, even thinner, non-bearded Dom DeLuise from the 60s is a really bad secret agent spy who's trying to get this microfilm from the guy who's an inventor. Anyway, it's a really fun film. I just saw uh, that movie Cloak and Dagger recently. Oh, yeah. And like, I haven't seen it in a long time and I was totally into it. It starts off where the kid's playing the role-playing game and it just really hit the nostalgia feel sort of like uh, Stranger Things did for me. 
And I was, yeah. I was just like totally into it. <laughs> yeah. And for those who don't know, I, I think I, I brought it up in our ET episode, but it stars the kid from ET is the star of that film. And his dad is Dabney Coleman, the boss from nine to five. Isn't Cloak and Dagger also a video game in that movie? Or am I misremembering that just that there was an Atari video game? Yeah, there was the role playing game. And then in the movie, they had a video game tie in. But I don't think that tie in was ever made. I think that was the intention. But I don't think they ever got it off the ground. And that is a really cool, like, what if a kid gets pulled into a spy, you know, world that's not Spy Kids, the Robert Rodriguez series of oh. films, <laughs> which are also actually pretty cool for what they are. Like, you'd think they'd be dumb kids films, but they're pretty inventive. Even going back to cartoons, again, James Bond is probably the most famous spy ever, but there was James Bond Jr. in the 90s on weekday mornings. I don't think he was uh, ready for Saturday mornings, but weekday mornings, 6 a.m., <laughs> Get your James Bond Jr. fix too. So with that, I think we're probably ready just to get into our pitches. And I think it's only fair, since he's the reason we're here, that we let Forrest go ahead and uh, make his pitch first. So Agent Forrest. All right, let's get this show on the road then. My pitch is for a, a new James Bond movie. And so it's called 007 Gemini. And I guess I'll get this out of the way first. It's going to be a complete recast. No more Daniel Craig. I know in the last movie he was kind of talking about he'd rather like pull out his eyes or shove glass in his fingers or do something like that and do another <laughs> James Bond. So I figured I, I'd you know take the pressure off him for the next one. So it would be like a new installment with uh, new actors, like a restart. We have a much younger James. Of course, casting comes to mind. So the person who I think would be perfect is a guy by the name of Dan Stevens, who is an English actor. He's from Downton Abbey. You know, he has the look. He he can pull it off and he can come even like downright scary sometimes. So, yeah, my pick for James Bond is uh, Dan Stevens. So it's going to start in South Africa. There's a major conference where all the big uh, minds and tech geniuses are together. And so 007 is just on a uh, routine mission there. And so with him is an agent by the name of 005, played by the always awesome Idris Elba. We got to bring him into the Bond franchise somehow. And so during their duty, one of the scientists gets abducted mid-conference. And then they chase him down a, a hallway and they see that he's getting a syringe plunged into his neck and they're actually withdrawing blood from this guy and so they embark on foot there's this great scene on the beach where they jump on boats and everything and because it's south africa bond and one of the the henchmen they start fighting and the henchman starts hanging overboard and big uh great white shark uh, breaches and then just just snatches the guy up hey gotta use the <laughs> wow and so one of the guys with the, uh, the blood samples running down the beach and then Idris Elba, 005, shoots him just square in the back, just downs the guy right on the beach. So what gets the story going here is that they find that guy, you know, dead on the beach. He's got a suitcase with different blood samples and he looks kind of like the James Bond character, you know, kind of blonde haired, blue eyes kind of fellow. And so this Gemini mission is that Bond is going to have to go undercover as his henchman. And, and uh, when they kind of check his body out, he has a, uh, a scorpion tattoo on his arm. And so Bond has to go undercover as uh, Scorpio. And one of the things that always was interesting about the Bond series is that it always seemed like 007 like, shouldn't be the rank that he is like it was kind of like a accident or there was some type of intervening circumstance where it's like look this guy defies all protocol but you know he's it like you know we need to have him that's the kind of explanation there where bond is the guy where he he has the look 
to, to go undercover, to be this double, and to pull off the mission. And so they go back to HQ, and he gets briefed from M in typical Bond fashion. And I really think for this one, you know, we need to have a strong female the same way that Judy Dench was for all those years. You know, kind of brief him about, you know, what's going on and going undercover and all that. And of course, you know, she doesn't trust him, but he's the only guy who can do it. And Hugh is, if there's any Top Gear fans, you guys are going to go crazy. Hugh is going to be played by uh, Jeremy Clarkson. <laughs> I mean, I just think he would have a hell of a time getting the car and talking about all these different gadgets and stuff. And yeah. It's like the best way. Yeah. Plus, he's got the humor, right? He's got that attitude. So it's perfect. Yeah. That dry, like British humor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, Q gets him hooked up and there's going to be some devices that come into play later on in the story. The briefcase, he tells him, you know, whenever you need this, the code is, is 007, which will come into play later. And of course, there's certain things you have to have in every James Bond movie. Uh, one of them's, you know, the Aston Martin. So he's going to hook him up with that, with, you know, the different gadgets and so on. Anyway, the Bond goes uh, undercover Scorpio and his next stop is in Gibraltar. And he shows up at the, the Chateau as this guy undercover. And he's greeted by two women, I- identical twins, the, the kind of Bond girl for this movie. And then they have like Gemini tattoos, one on each arm. Of course, they have a fling and all that where Bond's like, oh, you guys are sisters. And then they make a comment, oh, we're not sisters, which will come into play later when the whole plot's revealed. And then he arranges to do a deal with this other guy from the same unknown organization. And he goes to meet him at a club. And the guy just immediately spots him right off the bat. He's like, dude, you're not Scorpio. Like, what's going on here? So they get into the big car chase, zooming around Gibraltar, where there's all these old castles and stuff. And so Bond finally picks him off. And then the guy basically spills the beans about how there's a an organization that is designing the future. In his last dying breath, he tells him to look out for Taurus, the bull, and you'll find what you're looking for. And so they run a scan and everything. You know, what is Taurus? They find out that Taurus is actually a code name for Idris Elba's character, 005, and that he's actually secretly working for this corporation, which we don't know what they do yet. And so Bond has to go pick off Elba in Ireland. He does a secret fly-in at nighttime mission. You know, they fly in by gliders, and they're at this factory in Ireland, this chemical plant. And there's just this great scene. Elba and Bond, they, of course, go hand-to-hand, and they're, they're punching around and all that stuff. And eventually, Bond gets the upper hand, and Elba shows him that he's got this tattoo of the bull on him. It's similar, so we had the Scorpio, the Gemini the bull and then Elba kind of like ah screw it you know I'll just let you know I'm dying anyway and he tells him that he needs to go see Virgo who's the last main guy here and basically saying that Elba himself was engineered I was the best soldier I was made for this I was born for this and you'll get all your answers in Singapore where Bond shows up at this big skyscraper building he's still pretending to be Scorpio undercover so he walks in he has the briefcase and then he's sitting in this room he's waiting to talk to uh, the boss Virgo while he's waiting he overhears people outside saying this isn't him we got a message from from 005 that they're on to us and all this stuff so he clicks in uh, the 007 to the briefcase and then the briefcase opens up and there's a 3D printer inside and it starts printing a gun, like a plastic gun. And so while he's sitting there, you know, there's this great moment of tension where he's, he's waiting for this gun to finish being printed as the guy's about to jump in any minute. So they come in and they're like, who are you? And, and then he says, you know, in typical fashion, the name's Bond, James Bond. You hear like the timer ding pulls out the plastic gun, gets three shots off, the gun breaks apart, and then he gets a hold of a real weaponry, you know, shoots his way through the building, gets to the top floor, 
which is where he meets Virgo, who is the mastermind behind all this. And Virgo's plan is he is genetically altering babies to have certain characteristics, whatever their customers want. That's where that term, you know, being a designer comes from. And then Virgo is, he's from India, he's Indian descent. And so he gives this story about how people are so poor in India and how life is hard. And what they do is that they have a saying that the more sons you have, the greater chance of one of them being a doctor. Your whole family is taken care of. And he's saying that through this research, you know, we can just have one kid do it all. You know, the philosophical ethical dilemma there but as they're taking virgo away they do a raid kind of in a montage fashion where the british secret service they bust open the door and then there's a classroom and then all the kids they look the exact same so it's just really kind of creepy that's pretty much it that's the uh, the job well done for the day and i did have an end scene so this would be at the end of the movie sort of like in marvel fashion where there's a, a round table and then matt smith from uh, the doctor who franchise is there and he gets a report that one of his assets is no longer valuable the virgo uh, industry there and then it's revealed that uh, matt smith is actually uh, max zorin from uh, zorin Industries. so a little uh, a view to a kill easter egg there and then setting up the villain and uh wow and this yeah. is a film i want to see i i've got a <laughs> huge Bond fan. I like the Connery years and I haven't really caught up with very many of the others. And this is actually getting me excited to get in there because there were a lot of cool elements in there. The whole twins angle. I was like, I don't think Bond has uh, has scored with twins yet. So there you yeah. go, as far as I know. <laughs> yeah. In the films I've come across. So that's kind of neat. And especially that whole bit with the, uh, the 3D printer gun. That's a good gadget. That one's pretty sweet. Oh, yeah. I feel like he should use that more throughout the film. There's got to be some other opportunities he gets. Now, Brad Stevens, He's the one playing Beast in the new live-action Beauty and the Beast, right? Yeah, totally. Dan Stevens, yeah. So he's going to be rocketing to stardom in the next year or so, for sure. Oh, definitely. Yeah, and I pulled up a picture of him. He looks great. Like, you you were right. He's definitely got, you know, the suave but, like, intense look where he could really pull off a new, younger Bond with fresh take on it, which is very cool. And I like how you played with that, where it was Bond maybe is not the right guy for the job that they would go to first. First, but he's the only guy for the job. So you're going to put him in there no matter what. He's, he's got to yeah. do it. Seriously, I was getting pretty excited. Excellent work. All right, Adam, what do you have for us? You know, we got an intense adventure and I'm kind of going in a different direction. I always tend to lean towards comedy. And when I look at spy films, one of my favorite movies of all time is a Bill Murray film from 1997 called The Man Who Knew Too Little. And I don't know if you have either of you guys seen this film. I've heard of it. It's a very different Bill Murray than what we normally get. He's usually, you know, the wise guy. He's got a sarcastic edge to him. He's kind of subversive in his humor to everyone around him. And in this film, it's kind of like if you took Bob from What About Bob and threw him into a James Bond universe. That's kind of what it's like, where he is Wallace Ritchie, who's a guy who works at a blockbuster video, and his brother lives in England. And so for his birthday, he decides to fly himself out to meet with his brother and, and party. But his brother is having an important business meeting. And so he sends Wally, Bill Murray's character, away to this thing called the Theater of Life. And basically... 
it's where you get to pretend to be a secret agent and the actors take you to all these different parts and you know you stop you know robberies and abductions and save the day so he gets into that but what happens is he gets to the phone booth before an assassin and he gets pulled into a plot to kill a bunch of world leaders and then he loves acting but he has terrible stage fright and he's just like this happy-go-lucky oblivious guy and he's in all these dangerous situations and it's just hilarious throughout so if nobody has seen this film i really feel it's one of bill murray's best films so the man who knew too little so my sequel is called the men who know too little which is a sequel in the same universe and basically what's happening is after the success of wallace ritchie thwarting the plot to start another cold war in 1997 british intelligence started recruiting actors unknowingly into their theater of life program and sending them on missions under the guise of experimental film projects so after several successful missions the program eventually had to be disbanded due to the actors egos causing them to change the script and improvise and then they ended up getting themselves killed so what happens now though is you know it's modern day a new threat has emerged in the form of baron von dorfman and i'm seeing christoph waltz in this part because we haven't seen him really do a comedy so i'm sure he could give us something new either way you want a straight man to play off of and so von dorfman is a disgruntled german ambassador who's secretly been making deals with customs officials and commerce officials and other countries where their plot is to disable the import and export supply chains and hold these economies hostage in exchange for half of the trade income for the rest of the existence of the country or their lives whichever comes first so england is going to be the first target with a plan to take hold of their tea supply so the head of british intelligence who i see being played by anthony hopkins becomes aware of the plot and determines that the only way really to get in and infiltrate von dorfman's network and destroy it is to reactivate the theater of life program so he brings in the retired director in more ways than one of the theater of life an agent walker who i see being played by sir ian mckellen which again i feel like i have not seen him do comedy but he's got to have it in there somewhere and so he's reluctantly brought back to head the mission and given a trio of these goofy actors to, to come along with him. So the first is a gentleman named Peter being played by Eric Idle of Monty Python fame, who was a child actor in the late 60s on a BBC sitcom called We Warwick, where he played a lisping, foul-mouthed little scamp that loved tea. So Peter is just now emerging from a self-imposed 50-year stay in rehab for tea addiction, and uh, he has no concept of the world beyond the year 1975. He also, he happens to have a photographic memory, which is why as a kid he was able to memorize his lines and do things. And he's trying to get back into television, but spoils most of his auditions by knocking the tea out of casting director's hands because he just doesn't want to be tempted. Or he slips into his wee Warwick voice, which is not appropriate for any adult roles that he's auditioning for. So he's kind of a mess, but they recruit him. Next in is uh, Ian, played by Russell Brand. He's a quick-witted, but he's a timid guy. He's a former lead singer for a 90s one-hit wonder band called Yeah, It's Us, who gained infamy for only playing encores because they had just one good song and were too polite to waste the audience's time with any other music. So their career ended after a disastrous opening gig for Oasis that caused a riot. And then since then, Ian's been working as an understudy in the London theater for a string of unfortunately healthy actors, so he never actually makes it on stage. And he was recently fired from 
from his last part for rushing on stage uh, when the lead actor coughed backstage, seeming to indicate that he was too ill to perform. And also, Ian happens to have a knack for video editing and CGI work, and he's often inserting himself into videos of plays that he never got to perform in, just to kind of imagine himself there. And then finally, the third member of the team that they recruit is a guy named Robert, played by Steve Coogan. He's a has-been voice actor who's still riding on the coattails of his role as a puffy pufferfish in a series of forgotten 80s animated films and his most recent gig was voicing an anthropomorphic fudge-based laxative candy bar called Lugu and the indignity of the commercial is the final straw that causes Robert's unsupportive fiance to leave him so he's kind of heartbroken now all three actors are contacted by Agent Walker told they're up for the lead in a fake film called Rigby Dunn Secret Agent and uh, they're sent on solo missions to three international locations under the guise of a screen test so each is monitored by walker and he's got a business card he gave them that is a really a transmitter so peter again eric idol is told to infiltrate the office of the crooked customs official of england and his idea is he's gonna play clint eastwood he's gonna be an american tough guy and he's gonna get in there and it doesn't really work out so when that fails he ends up using his former celebrity status as we warwick to charm security into letting him through and he ends up memorizing the script in this guy's office, which is actually the transcript of a conversation he had with Von Dorfman about their plot. And when he returns to the audition space, he tells Walker he may not be able to accept the part due to the, his past issues with tea and what it does to him, but he's assured that no actual tea will be allowed on set. So then Ian, again, Russell Brand, is uh, sent to India and thinks he can impress the film producers by splicing in footage of himself doing Bollywood style dances dressed like a Sikh into the security camera feed before he infiltrates the office of the Minister of Commerce there to take picture of some bribe money that's in a safe that Von Dorfman gave him. So he completes his mission under the cover of his Bollywood music video, which is just confusing to the security team. They never even know he was there. Now, Robert, played by Steve Coogan, is sent to China and tries to sneak into the estate of the owner of the highest volume tea producer in the country to find communications from Von Dorfman. But he does it dressed in a stereotypical Chinaman costume and usually a racially offensive accent speaking gibberish Chinese. It's just terrible, terrible. And when this fails and he's almost caught, he manages to distract the armed guards by performing a puffy pufferfish song after he sees the character on one of their cell phone cases and manages to escape. And return to British intelligence, they have a bunker known as the studio, in quotes. Uh, it's revealed that this experimental film will star all three of them in the lead role as the hero Rigby Dunn is a master of disguise. So the actors are thrilled to be cast but not happy to be sharing the spotlight however this is all smoothed over when they meet their co-star who's a gorgeous british agent codenamed camellia played by alice eve so then the trio spend some time getting to know each other in rehearsals but their egos don't allow them to get along especially peter and ian because peter is awarded the movie's final big monologue and ian kind of just feels like an understudy again and agent walker is just flustered by the prima donnas he has to watch over and somehow turn into real secret agents and they comedically try to sabotage each other's chances at maintaining the lead role to gain Camellia's affections before finally being called out on their first day of shooting in quotes uh, which is really their first mission and in infiltration of Von Dorfman's British base of operations but it fails because they're all trying to upstage each other which Camellia manages to pull them out at the last minute so Furious Walker nearly resigns but then he gets an apology in the form of a ridiculous 
ridiculous song and dance number titled Our Bloody Bad by the three actors, which manages to convince him to stay on and guide them to the follow-up mission. And in the meantime, Camellia has taken a slight interest in Robert and they strike up a little bit of a romance there. Now, the final mission finds them all working together to stop Von Dorfman's plans as they reveal to the cooperating corrupt officials in a meeting that the villain is actually planning to seize control of the entire tea trade for himself, murdering each of them once the plan is put into place. So they're up at arms, they've turned against him, and victory seems assured, but just at the last minute, Camellia switches sides, revealing that she is Von Dorfman's daughter, Alexa, and has interrupted all communication with Walker, British intelligence, and meanwhile has managed to grab Robert and hold him hostage at gunpoint. So she then tells the actors the truth about the theater of life, that they're actually in danger, that they're actually on missions for the government, and they're totally surprised, but with the truth revealed, they decide to improvise, and Peter lets Ian finally take center stage and recite the film's final big monologue as a means to create a diversion, while he reluctantly drinks a pot of tea, sending him into a rage and allowing him to violently disable Von Dorfman's henchmen and knock the villain out. Robert sweet-talks Alexa and kind of confuses her uh, and then manages to disarm her and take off, dragging Von Dorfman's unconscious body with him, and he shoves him in a room and records a confession video with him imitating Von Dorfman's voice and kind of flapping his lips open and closed off screen. And then with the mission complete, they've uh, managed to stop the plot. All the actors are cast in a series of high-grossing films as a thank you for their participation and successful completion of the mission. And the curtain is closed on the theater of life once again. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot going on there. I was holding it last the entire time. I can't tell you how hard it was when you started talking about the racially insensitive Chinaman costume. (laughs) (laughs) I felt this would very much be in the vein of a Tropic Thunder. It definitely feels like it. Yeah, absolutely. I will say when you said with with the Von Dorfman, I I was totally expecting you to say uh, Peter Dinklage playing Von Uh, Dorfman. (laughs) Yeah, the truth is he was my first choice, but I was like, that's going to be too obvious and I don't want (laughs) to typecast him that way. Now, Jeremy, did you have either a particular favorite spy film that you would want to do a sequel to? Whether or not you have an actual pitch, but was there one that you always felt needed something new, something different, or just more of it? You know, I've been kicking ideas around, and I've got one in mind, but it plays off of two TV shows that I'm watching right now. They both kind of give me a few ideas. One is called Timeless. It's on NBC, I believe, and essentially it's a historian, a soldier, and the pilot. They all go back in time in a time ship, but they're going back in time because some terrorists broke in and stole the upgraded model of the time ship. So they're going back in time to wherever the other jump ship goes to and try to keep history the same. So it's kind of time cop-ish in a way. And there's also Legends of Tomorrow that I'm watching where it's like the Batman 66 campiness of time travel. They're like, oh, something happened in the time stream. We need to go fix it. And they always go back and they cause something even worse every time. But there's like no consequence to what they do. So I kind of been kicking around the idea of a group of, I guess we could call them for lack of a better term, time terrorists, Daniel Craig, Neil McDonough and Chiwetel Ejiofor team up 
and they go back in time and bring Jack the Ripper back to the future, to present day, and he's let loose on modern-day London. And so then we'd also have Jeremy Irons manning the command post of MI6, and let's say Kiefer Sutherland as the head of the CIA. And so they're teaming up, and about a third of the way through the movie, they find out that they've caught this guy who is actually Jack the Ripper. And so they have to enlist a couple spies from both sides in order to go back in time and correct this and also begin the new Time Cop program. And then we'd go back and these spies would essentially go through and try to solve some of the greatest mysteries throughout history, but not all in one movie. Like, this would play out over a series of movies. Wow, so you're pitching an actual new concept, even. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, in a way. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, a way that you might be able to make it work, uh, they could start it as a remake to this movie called Time After Time. I don't know if you know about this film with Malcolm McDowell. And that's essentially what it is, is H.G. Wells has to go into the future using his time machine to catch Jack the Ripper who has traveled himself to the future, you know, so it's it's just interesting. So you could almost tie it into that, have a similar story, and that way it's part of an existing franchise. You know, I think I'd rather start fresh. <laughs> That's fair enough. And that way, we don't have to kill off our bad guys, our time terrorists. We can just kind of end up wrapping up, solving the issue in the past, correcting the time, and working on it that way, because... Neil McDonough can lay on the campiness of a bad guy like no other. I mean, I've seen him in in multiple movies do that. And they weren't even good movies. And he is (laughs) acting the crap out of that role. Granted, last year he played the bad guy on Arrow on the Mm -hmm. CW. Wasn't quite the right fit because they tried to restrict his... They didn't let him chew the scenery enough. So you just kind of got a taste for it. And now they've moved him to one of the bad guys for Legends of Tomorrow. And it is amazing because he can go all out on it. So I kind of like to play off of that. And then Chiwetel Ejiofor, which if you've watched Doctor Strange, is now Baron Mordo. And he's got this edge to him as, as a villain And so it's something where you can come into contact back in the past, but due to not wanting to change the timeline, they can't kill each other. Or else it'd create some sort of time loop and lock them all into place. Kind of sciencey mumbo-jumbo it so that it sounds like it would work. Of course. (laughs) Much like everything else. I mean, enough to be like, uh, okay, we can go with this. But yeah, just something like time spies kind of thing. There you go. It definitely would work. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. And just so I'm understanding again, you said Jack the Ripper, is he just at the beginning of it? Like he's part of the, the issue that they're finding other, there's other terrorists or how exactly? Yeah, he would be the reason why the US and or the MI6 and CIA come together and create their own task force of spies that that's all they do is they specifically deal with timeline stuff. Yeah, okay. I was looking at Willem Dafoe as Jack the Ripper. Ah, ha, ha. 
Oh, the nice. ultimate villain. I'm sure we could work in a role of, for Johnny Depp somewhere. Well, he was in From Hell, right? Right. So there you go. Very nice. Well, I, I wanted to throw this out. I, I was just thinking about this. This is uh, not an original pitch by me, but just as going back to the, the impetus for the show and the Bond franchise, for those who are not aware, uh, there, there's a guy named Max Landis. He's an internet personality. He's kind of a script doctor, I think, in Hollywood. And he's the son of John Landis, famous film director but he was on the nerdist podcast several years ago and he pitched kind of like the end of the bond franchise <laughs> but it was really interesting the concept and you should just look it up it's like just a three-minute pitch that he has but the basic element of it is that james bond name is actually just passed on from agent to agent and so, like, you know, the 007, you know, is just becomes James Bond. And so that's why in all the, you know, throughout the history of James Bond, you've had different actors playing the roles. And so that way he's saying it could all be in continuity. And then what happens is two of the older James Bonds have now gone rogue and are are taking down, uh, you know, the whole organization and killing all the double O's. And in his pitch, Dalton and Brosnan as the evil Bonds that have come back. And they're, uh, you know, taking on Daniel Craig's Bond, who has to stop and save the day. I love that concept. We can work it with Forrest Pitch. You know what? We got one more Bond because they're just passing the name on, you know. But I just think that's a really fun way to think of that franchise even if it's probably never going to happen yeah i think that's really cool that you know all these movies could exist in the same universe and like you said that james bond is the code name for the agent who rises to the ranks i mean that would be awesome and then to have them uh square off like i would love to see sean connery versus roger moore like that would be fantastic. <laughs> wow, old man fights. Yeah. <laughs> so they you know, they just have their body doubles, Sandids, you know, get Sean Connery out of retirement. One more film, one more bond. All right. Well, I think we've accomplished our mission here today, gentlemen. Again, awesome pitch for us. Thanks for giving us a solid bond film we can uh, maybe look forward to someday. But I know you mentioned you had a couple other pitches in mind for the future. So we'll give you a call and have you back. That would be great. This was a blast. So with that, on to your mission. This just in. We have a report in from Agent Jeff. Jeff, what is your pitch? I uh, have always been a fan of the believe it or not, this actually happened sort of stories. So my pitch was actually... The best name I came up with was Heavy Water, although it seems like there's potential there, but that's not very good. So again, the true story is that the Germans during World War II were very close to developing atomic bombs. And if they would have with their V2 rockets, they probably would have conquered the world. And so the true story is that the French-Norwegian underground discovered that and so sent in a team of spies to destroy what they were doing and set them back so that that gave time for the Allies to invade and win the war. So that's what I'd like to see. They actually made it into a kind of a low, well, not low budget. It had Kirk Douglas in it back in the 40s, but not many people have seen it. So I thought it'd be neat to make that into a story. You would start with the French choosing their four like top people and do some banter back and forth with the allies. So we get kind of the gravity of the situation that this is a mission that will decide the fate of the entire world, literally. And then I kind of would want to go back and forth with what really happened and then kind of 
spice it up a little bit maybe. And Because in reality, the four French spies were more kind of coordinators, but of course we would want them to be the heroes that are kind of leading the, the band of Norwegian resistance fighters. Uh, it was pretty interesting that they didn't want to kill anybody because they're all from Norway in the factory. So that they had to do it all super secretly so that nobody, even the guards on duty, they wouldn't have to kill them. So they had to do it so silently so that uh, they could do the entire thing undetected. And rather than using bombs and just blowing the thing up, they ended up leaking all of the water out into the ocean. And nobody knew anything about it until the next day. So that would be uh, the story that I would want to see. Again, developing those four characters not only they're uh, getting to know each other and bonding with each other, but then spending most time on the mission, the mission kind of breaking up into two parts, one with them joining up with the resistance, and then the two with them actually coordinating, planning the sabotage, and then actually doing it. Wow, okay. A little history in there. Yeah, so that's cool. Now, did you have casting in mind? Well, as with everything else in the world right now, this so feels like something that a, an executive would go, yes, let's get Chris Pine. And no, no, Chris Pine, <laughs> anywhere. He's not French or Norwegian. That would so be my an, only... you have anti-casting in mind. Exactly. <laughs> Just none of him. You want to throw Cumberbatch in there? No one seems to know what nationality he is these days. So, you know, that would be fine. It would be really interesting to cast some of these French actors, other than the fact that it would kind of alter the perception of the movie. But if you trade some French actors that no one would expect to see, like, isn't, um, what's his name from the new Pirates movie? No Country for Old Men. Javier. Yeah, he's Spanish, yeah. I think. He's Spanish. But again, no one knows. They just assume he's not from America, so that's close enough. But yeah, you could throw some other ones. I mean, there's not as many famous French actors, so you could even do it, you know, kind of discovering new ones. And well, well, why, kind of... why, not, why not get Odo from uh, Deep Space Nine? Oh my gosh, because he's like 70. No, he would be, <laughs> he would probably be pretty good in the resistance to be kind of one of the ones that are okay. like the skeptical one. And if you were going to really put a lot of thought and effort, hopefully, into making a movie like that, the easy way out would be you got four characters, so let's make them four stereotypes of the four like, this is the hothead, and this is the veteran, and this is the whatever. But it'd be interesting to play with that a little bit and not do the stereotypes and instead do it a little bit more real people and everything. But Jeff, who is your favorite Bond? Oh gosh, that's a tough one. You can't not say Sean Connery, I think, because he is Bond. But for me, like if you're going to actually say favorite, then it's kind of like favorite for the movies and for everything like that. I grew up with Pierce Brosnan, so he's my favorite, but... Sean Connery is James Bond, if you ask me, so. And this ends our late-breaking report from Jeff. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sequel Quest and invite you to join us next week for another discussion about a film that never was. Share your ideas with the Sequel Quest universe by visiting SequelQuestPod.com, following us on Twitter at SQPod, on Facebook by searching Sequel Quest, or sending an email to SequelQuestPod at gmail.com. Let the world know how much you enjoy the show by leaving a review and five-star rating on iTunes iTunes. All films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. 